Well, it's great to be with you this morning. Uh, as was said earlier, my name is Steve. I'm the assistant pastor at InTown Presbyterian in downtown Portland, and uh, it's great for me to be out here and uh, see the work that Eric's been up to and what you guys have been up to, and um, just glad to be here with you this morning. So, uh, our text this morning from the New Testament is from Ephesians chapter 4, and it says this Be kind to one another. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is the word of the Lord. I'm going to pray for us and we'll get started. Father, we come now only by your grace to sit under your word. If we were left to ourselves, we would disregard your teaching. So we ask that you would send your spirit to this place this morning to enliven our hearts to your written word and to your incarnate word, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. In Victor Hugo's novel, Les Miserables, we are introduced to one of the main characters at a particularly low point in his life. Jean Valjean is finishing up a prison sentence for robbery. And in our own cultural context, I think many of us would would no doubt find his sentence to be particularly harsh considering the crime that he committed. For years, he has been engaged in mind-numbing manual labor. He's surrounded by dehumanizing treatment, both from the other prisoners and from the guards. As Jean Valjean drinks in bitterness, he becomes as cold and hard as the stones that he has been tasked with breaking up. Many of you are no doubt familiar with this story, whether you've read the book or seen one of the film adaptations, but the story of of Valjean is is one of uh, heartbreak and healing. And as Valjean is released from prison physically, we quickly realize that as he re-enters society, he is in a prison house from which there is no escape. No innkeepers will take him in. No employers will give him a second glance. Jean Valjean embodies what Hugo chose to call the miserable ones. As Valjean becomes angrier and even more bitter as he is uh, re-entering society, we're introduced to another character, the kind-hearted Bishop Muriel. Bishop Muriel takes in Jean Valjean, gives him shelter, gives him food, and gives him dignity. In the middle of the night, though, Valjean, who is at this point incapable of accepting kindness, let alone showing it to anyone else, gets up, steals the bishop's silver, and runs away. But Jean Valjean gets caught. And as a second offender, he is now facing a life sentence. As the lawmen bring him back to the bishop's house to confirm that he did indeed steal this silver before they cart him off to jail for life, Jean Valjean is faced with his deeds. But then his life changes forever. Bishop Muriel begins to scold him. Why didn't you take the candlesticks as well? They're the most valuable. The lawmen leave baffled. And Bishop Muriel leans in closely to Jean Valjean and reminds him of a promise that Valjean had never made, to become an honest man. In one of the most gripping scenes of this story, Muriel stares Valjean in the eyes and says, With this silver, I have bought your soul. And for the rest of of that incredibly complex novel, Hugo describes for us in the character of Jean Valjean the very thing that St. Paul declares to us here in this verse. Forgiven people are forgiving people. 
I submit to you that if we are to make any sense of Paul's command to us here in Ephesians chapter 4, we must without hesitation understand our own identity as fundamentally forgiven people. With our identity as forgiven people as a rubric, I'd like to look at three things in this verse. The mechanics of our forgiveness of others, the motivation for our forgiveness of others, and the magnitude of our forgiveness of others. The first is the mechanics of our forgiveness. A more literal translation of this verse says, Become to one another kind, tender-hearted, forgiving one another. Whatever our self-made understanding of forgiveness may tell us, Paul leaves no room for doubt. Forgiveness is an expression of Christian kindness and tender-heartedness. Christian forgiveness is not sterile courtroom acquittal. Rather, our forgiveness is an extension of kindness and tender-heartedness. It's been suggested that since Paul is telling the Ephesians in this verse to become this way, he's setting up an adversative from the verse before. And in verse 31, Paul has written that all anger, bitterness, wrath, clamor, and malice should be put away from us. Rather than allowing those things any place in our lives, Christians are to be kind, tender-hearted people. This word group suggests a sort of warm eagerness to let go of our rights to retributive justice. Christian forgiveness seeks holistic restoration. If you ever, have ever sprained an ankle, then you know what it's like to favor that foot. You treat it gently, tenderly. The thing that has caused you pain is what you're wanting to, to stave off is to not allow that very thing that has caused you pain and injury to cause you more pain and injury. So when you've been wronged by others or injured by them, is your immediate response to be kind and tender-hearted, Or are you keeping score? When your spouse does or says something that hurts or annoys you, are the first words out of your mouth, will you always or you never? Have you had someone you work with or maybe even someone here just a few pews over say something hurtful to your face or behind your back? What is your response? Do you engage in self-talk that seeks to defend your own ego and tear down your offender? This is not Christian forgiveness no matter how many times you say the words, I forgive you. See, just a few verses prior to this in chapter 4, Paul uses the metaphor of a body for the church. So if you are a part of Christ's church, then you are a member of that body. When someone has wronged you, you should treat them like you would treat your own sprained ankle, by responding to the very one that has caused you pain with tenderness, kindness, not seeking to cause more pain, but seeking holistic restoration. These are the mechanics of our forgiveness. But Paul doesn't simply tell us what our forgiveness should look like. He reaches into the very guts of our motivation. He says that we are to forgive one another just as God in Christ has forgiven us. Throughout his entire letter to the Ephesians, it's as if Paul has been running out of breath and words to describe the absolute majesty of God's superhistorical plan of redemption. Paul is overwhelmed as he obsessively considers the great mystery that redemption and vindication were not for national Israel only, but for all nations. Paul's theology has been radically reoriented to see that the true human, the true Israel, has been summed up in the God-man, Jesus Christ. And throughout this letter, Paul reminds Gentile people that individually, we were all dead in our sins, 
enemies of God, followers of the prince of the power of the air, and corporately we were alienated strangers, far off, divided from God and his people by a wall of hostility. But when Paul says in our text this morning that we have been forgiven by God in Christ, that is shorthand for everything he's been saying up to this point. In Christ, we have every spiritual blessing. In Christ, all things are united. In Christ, we have obtained an inheritance. In Christ, we have been made alive. In Christ, we have been sealed with the Holy Spirit. In Christ, we have been brought near. In Christ, the dividing wall of hostility has been broken down. In Christ, Jew and Gentile have been reconciled, reformed into the true humanity. In Christ, we have forgiveness. And all of this has been made possible, not simply by Christ's divinity, but by Christ's humility, by the ripping apart of his own flesh and the shedding of his own blood. This is the core of our identity. Forgiven people are forgiving people. So if you think of yourself primarily as a father or a wife or a son, a husband or an athlete, a teacher, a businessman, or today of all days, if you think of yourself primarily as a mother, if you think of yourself primarily as a Democrat or a Republican, a drinker or a teetotaler, when any of these things are threatened, you will strike back in vindication. But if you base your entire identity on the simple fact that just like Jean Valjean, you have been on the precipice of certain judgment only to be snatched back in kindness by the very person that you wronged, if you let that sink into the core of your being, then kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness will begin to flow out of you. This is the motivation for our forgiveness. So we've seen that our forgiveness should be kind and tender-hearted, and we see that our motivation for forgiveness is found in the gospel. We must now reckon with the magnitude of our forgiveness of others. How much should we be willing to forgive other people? In 1994, the nation of Rwanda became embroiled in a genocide that would last for 100 days, with a total body count of over 800,000 people. More than 10% of Rwanda's total population was killed, and the kill rate was often at more than 10,000 people per day. Today, there is virtually no one over the age of 21 in Rwanda who did not either participate in the murder and slaughter of neighbors, family, co-workers, and friends, or has not been affected by having a neighbor, co-worker, or friend murdered. In this country that has been wrecked by genocidal violence, there is now a strange phenomenon taking place. There are an estimated 120,000 murderers in Rwanda. And the country simply did not have the resources to imprison all of these people, much less give them a full legal trial. And so as of a few years ago, the Rwandan government has begun to set up tribunals throughout the nation. And they have released tens of thousands of these murderers back into their communities. These tribunals get set up in the communities where the crimes took place, and the murderers come back to their old neighborhoods to confess what they have done, to look the people that they have hurt in the eye and apologize. 
These murderers are then actually given tasks to rebuild the communities that they helped destroy. How could you forgive a man who has murdered your entire family? I mean, really, really forgive him. How could you allow a man to come in and help rebuild your home, to come into the very place where you shared moments with brothers or sisters, sons or daughters, husband or wife, the very people that he brutally took away from you? He has stolen every bit of happiness from your life. How do you give up your right to ask something back in return? And this is really what's at the heart of Peter's question to Jesus in Matthew 18. It's the same question that we ask all too often. How much do I really have to forgive? Seven times? Seven times seven, seven times 77? Is it 490 total? What's the max? And just like Peter if we are to understand the magnitude with which we are to forgive others, we must understand the magnitude with which we have been forgiven. The story that Jesus tells in response to that question of Peter is of a servant who was uh, forgiven beyond much. 10,000 talents is what this servant owed his master. In terms of current day quantities, even if the servant could live off of nothing so that everything he earned went to pay off his debt directly, it would have taken him 200,000 years to pay off this debt. I'm sure many of you know the story. This man comes in and pleads with his master before he gets thrown in jail, asking for mercy, and the master forgives the debt. As Jesus is telling this story, we are awestruck at the generosity of this master. What a beautiful ending. But the story isn't over. And the servant who has just forgiven much walks out and refuses to forgive what is in comparison an absolutely minuscule amount of debt compared to his own. And what Jesus is saying to Peter and what he's saying to us is that it doesn't matter how moralistic we may try to live. Our debt is unpayable. So unpayable that it required the life of God himself this is the magnitude of our forgiveness. I think apart from the grace of God, the scariest prayer in the Bible is one that many of us are very familiar with, the Lord's Prayer. I'm sure you know it. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In Matthew chapter 6, the only part of that prayer that Jesus explains to his disciples is that phrase. In case it wasn't clear enough, he says, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Maybe you got cut off in traffic this morning. Perhaps you have a boss at work that has lied about you or a spouse that has been unfaithful to you. Maybe you have a child that has spurned your care and walked away from the faith. Maybe there is someone at the end of your pew that has gossiped about you and ripped your heart in two. What are we supposed to do? 
Just command ourselves to stop hurting. Friends, forgiving others is not a pull-yourself-up-by-your-bootstraps sort of activity. All the self-resolve on the planet will not make you a truly forgiving person. I implore you, rather, look into the face of your Savior. In faith, ask him to once again fill your heart with the knowledge of the unknowable love that he has for you. I can assure you, just as Paul assured the Ephesians, the same spirit that powerfully raised Jesus from the dead is at work in your hearts. Like John Valjean, we have been ransomed, but by something far more precious than silver. We have been ransomed and bought with the precious blood of Christ. Lay hold onto the blessings that are yours in him and step into the lives of the people around you intoxicated with the forgiveness that you have received. Let's pray together. Father, when we see how prone we are to holding grudges, it is indeed a fearful thing to hear the words that if we do not forgive, we will not be forgiven. And yet we rest in the hope that as the forgiveness that we have been given in Christ dwells within us, we will become truly forgiving people, not because we are somehow better, but because of your spirit, because of the way that you are working in our lives. I ask that as we come to your table that you would feed us, that you would fill our hearts with true knowledge of our forgiveness, with the magnitude of our forgiveness, and that we would leave this place as people that have been changed. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.